this morning we're going to be wrapping up Matthew chapter 10. So I want you guys to turn there. And I want to preface this real quick. I feel like I have to do this every week for the last few weeks. This is a really hard text. And I really struggled this morning um, with the fact that it's Christmas week and this is sort of where we land in the text and what we get to deal with. And there's a couple interesting aspects to this text that I want to address this morning. But what I'm convinced of is the fact that Jesus knows before, from the beginning of time, he's knew where we would be today and what, what we'd be reading. And so I've been praying this week that as we read even a difficult passage, that it actually would be an encouragement because I think that there's some of you in here, as we talk about this idea of leaving everything behind to follow Jesus, like to devote our lives fully to him. We come into this week where um, we sort of want to just escape everything in life to make Christmas and, and, and the holidays that we're gonna celebrate, the, the kind of the core, the, the centerpiece to this next week. Um, but may we not forget this week the, the reason for the season, but we, may we also not forget this week that despite everything going on in this world, Jesus is breaking in. Like, he's here. He's present. He's with us. We can trust that we are not solo on this mission, that, that he hasn't sent us out um, to just be on our own and um, not have any provision or guidance or um, direction from him. And so this morning, um, I want to lift this time up before him, and I want to just pray that he would open up our hearts to hear what he has to speak to each one of us through his word. And so let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that sometimes we come to difficult texts like this, and everything in me just feels stressed out about it. But what I know, God, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that you're here, that you're present. God, that you move through your word, even the most difficult of words. And so we give it to you this morning, Jesus, and I pray for those in this room that find themselves at places in life where they feel distant from you, God, and I just pray that this morning be an encouragement to them, God, that they are not distant, you actually came near, and that this morning they would find you in a very real way, and for us who know you, Jesus, may your word this morning be something that becomes a light unto our path, like a, a blueprint for us, God, something that we can continue to follow and be challenged and convicted and, and changed by, transformed by Jesus. And so we invite you to allow your word to have its way in us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 10, <clears throat> verses 34 through 42. Listen to this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because, of, because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, 
he will by no means lose his reward. So we're wrapping up Matthew 10, um, which, which is, is often known as Jesus's like mission discourse. It's, uh, this chapter started off with Jesus calling his disciples to him, commissioning his disciples, he's sending them out, and Jesus begins to give them the, these specific instructions on their journey as disciples. And so then he morphs into this warning about persecution and violence and that they, would fa- that they would face from like religious people, that they would face from the government, from their families, from uh, essentially all of society that we've been talking about over the last couple weeks. And, and this promise that this will get progressively worse until Jesus comes back. And last week in our study, there, there was this promise from Jesus that all of this hostility shouldn't freak his disciples out or cause them to live in a state of fear. And so Jesus gave these three compelling sort of reasons why they don't need to live in fear. And in this final section, this final part of Jesus' message to his disciples, Jesus highlights these three major points that I want to look at this morning. And, and um, the, the first one is this, is that there will be hostility uh, even amongst family. The second is that there needs to be family priorities for us. And, and I kind of want to address the state of the church as I see it right now. Um, in America. And then the third part is that there are these eternal rewards, and we can't lose focus of that, that, that there is a reward that awaits us. And so Jesus gives some pretty revolutionary, like these pretty radical instructions to his disciples um, for individuals and for families. But the first is this in, in verse 34, it says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus will ultimately bring peace. He ultimately will, but not right away. And this has to be one of the most difficult statements that Jesus has ever made. Doesn't this seem like a contradiction to what the angels said at the birth of Jesus when they said, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I mean, this is, we're, we're seeing this in movies, we're reading this, we're talking about this a lot over the coming week, and then Jesus comes out and says, I didn't come to bring peace, I actually came to bring a sword. I mean, Jesus is even called the Prince of Peace. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God, and that we're exhibiting these attributes of God when we are actually making peace because God himself is a peacemaker. His gospel is called the gospel of peace. It's this gospel of reconciliation. It makes reconciliation not only between sinners and God, but between sinners and sinners. Like it reconciles, it brings peace. And so what is meant by the statement, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Um, A fairly well-known biblical scholar named F.F. Bruce says this. He says, the sword is the effect of his coming, not the purpose of his coming. And I really like that statement because just like many people thought that there would be this return of the Messiah and that that, that, the return of the Messiah would bring them peace and prosperity right then and there, like they wanted to make Jesus king on the spot in order to grant themselves, like to get to a place where they had peace on this earth. And many people today think that the Messiah is actually supposed to bring peace and prosperity right now. I mean, if we're hitting this nail on the head at any other point in time, it's right now. What, how does the prosperity gospel stand in the face of pandemic in America? Like, it, it 
doesn't. Like, how do you reconcile this? Jesus didn't come to bring peace to the earth. He came to bring a sword, is what he says. And Jesus says, in effect, like, I haven't come to bring your best life now, but in essence, I've come to bring sort of your worst life now. I mean, not to sound like a downer, but it's really what he's saying. Your life might be miserable because of your attachment to Jesus. People hate him. They might hate you as well because you have devoted your life to him. And so even though Jesus is this prince of peace, people treated him with hostility. They murdered him. He, he didn't experience peace. Jesus experienced death. And Jesus is sort of reiterating to his followers, like, this is what's in store for you. Though it sounds discouraging, the encouraging part is the reward piece at the end, that it's all not, it's not for nothing. Like, there's something that awaits those who devote themselves to him. And so his, his main principle is this, that there will be hostility amongst family even because of Jesus. There will be hostility in the family. I read a story that a pastor told of a girl that he met at a Christian conference who said that she'd become a Christian. Um, from a, she came from a total pagan, like non-believing family. And she said that her father wouldn't speak to her after she gave her life to Jesus. He wouldn't have anything to do with her. He wouldn't even talk to her. Like if she called him on the phone, he'd actually just hang up on her. And she went on to say this to this pastor. I would think that he'd be happy that I'm not an alcoholic, that I'm not a drug addict, that I'm not a criminal, that I haven't been involved in some terrible accident, that I've been crippled or injured. Like I've never had such joy in my life before and yet my father won't even talk to me. This is because Jesus brings a sword. There's actually something very divisive about Jesus. The, the effect of his coming is sort of hostility. There, there will be hostility in families as a result of his gospel. Maybe not every family, but some. And Jesus paints a very realistic picture of what it could look like in following him. Many people have, have felt the sword of sorts at school. Many of you have even felt it maybe at your workplace. That there's this division and hostility that comes from identifying yourself with Jesus. And so not only will families feel the, feel the, the hostility as a result of the gospel, but even marriages will feel it, feel it, right? This is why the Bible is so specific when it talks about being unequally yoked, because there's something that happens when you've got one person that believes, one person do, that doesn't, and they're bound together in marriage, and there's a hostility that takes place because it's not the person, we talked about this last week, like the enemy is the enemy, right? But the person that they actually hate is Jesus in us. It's not us. And there will be this sort of metaphorical sword that comes in between families, in between relationships, in marriages. There'll, there'll be conflict and aggression because of the gospel itself. And these statements by Jesus tell us that, that we should not expect peace and tranquility. Like Martin Luther said, if our gospel were, were received in peace, it would not be the true gospel. And if people are never offended or upset by the gospel message that we share, then I'd cause you to rethink if you're actually presenting the true gospel. 
because it does bring offense. There's something about it that people don't like, and Jesus has been laying that out over this last chapter. Things like leaving everything behind to follow me. People don't get that. Devoting your life to something else, something not grounded here on earth, but something unseen that's grounded in heaven. And so there's this call for sinners to repent like many times, and it doesn't jive with those whose hearts have become hardened. And so there's this sense in which Jesus says to expect hostility. And there's four groups that Jesus laid out like just a few verses ago when he's talking to his disciples. There's four groups that he kind of lays out that he says you should sort of expect hostility from. He says persecution would come from religious groups. He said persecution would come from the government, from society, and even from family. But I think that the hardest persecution would be coming from family, to be honest. Like the people you love most. And maybe that's why Jesus addresses it again here. Like he already mentioned it in verse 21. But this kind of persecution is the hardest, especially for this tight-knit community of people and families that the Jews typically had. Like, this probably sounded insane. This was a hard word for the audience that Jesus is presenting this to. And it's equally as hard for you and I to try to figure this out. But family dynamics can often be interesting. I'm sure there's been plenty of things that have caused frustrations amongst my family at certain times. I'm not even gonna go into details. Plenty of things that have caused frustrations, fears, concerns, like arguments. And it's even one thing to have like hostility in a family over poor decisions that somebody made, um, but a division and hostility within a family over Jesus and the gospel would be painful. Uh, Hostility and division between siblings and parents because of Jesus would be painful. Like, by God's grace, I have not had to experience that in my life. But I know many of you in this room have had to deal with that. Where literally you taking a stand for Jesus has pinned you against somebody in your family who thinks differently. Jesus and his gospel have resulted in a sword. It does divide. It's a message most do not want to hear. It contradicts everything that the world tells us. Matthew 10, 37 says this, but whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So ultimate love and loyalty belongs to Jesus alone. It's only him. Jesus demands this when he summarizes the law. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he goes on to say that the second to that is, is that we should love our neighbor as ourself. And then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. But our number one priority is to love God above all else. He's it. Our first priority is to God. And Jesus sort of sets the terms for discipleship, not you and I. Like we live in a world that wants to create our own methods of discipleship that actually are conducive with the life that we want to live. Jesus sets the terms. It's him first and foremost, then other things but it's him first. 
And we aren't at liberty to alter and change his words or Jesus's demands. And so Jesus says that our love and allegiance and loyalty to him is to come before every other relationship. Jesus has to come first. Um, Right before, this is a funny story, but right before Charles Spurgeon got married, he picked up his fiance to take her to a place where he was gonna preach. And when they arrived and they got to this place, they were separated by this massive crowd of people. And Spurgeon was sort of this celebrity at the, if you guys are familiar with Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon, he's sort of a celebrity in his day, even at 20 years old. And so thousands of people are pushing in, like, to get close to him, to hear him preach. And so he sort of pushes his way up to the platform, um, and and he, he preaches, and after the meeting was over, he looks around for his fiance, and he can't find her anywhere. And so he goes straight to her house. And he, he, fa- he finds her in her house and she's sort of frustrated and she's bawling and she says, Charles, you, you left me in that crowd all alone and you weren't even concer- concerned with where I was. And this is what he said, I'm sorry, but perhaps what happened was providential. I didn't intend to be impolite, but whenever I see a crowd like that waiting for me to preach, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility I forgot about you. (laughs) Now, let's get one thing straight, he says. It will have to be the rule of our marriage that the command of my master comes first. You shall have second place. Are you willing, as my wife, to take a second place while I give the first place to Jesus? Sounds harsh. Maybe you would or wouldn't respond like this. I'm not sure that I'm brave enough to respond like that. But the principle is really rad. (laughs) It's Jesus first. Even before your spouse, it's Jesus first. And and Jesus demands this in his church, that he comes first and foremost. Dan Stolbarger and I I have been studying through the book of Revelation for the last couple months. And as we were parsing through chapter 2 in the letters to the churches, the, the rebuke that's given to the church in Ephesus really just rang true with me, like it stuck out more so than ever before. Um, But in Revelation 2, 1 through 6, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. He says, I know you, I, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Lovelessness to Jesus is a serious matter. It's serious. And what's his accusation against the church in Ephesus? They'd abandoned their first love and their loyalty and their devotion to Jesus. They'd done all the right things. But they forsook the only thing that matters. And Jesus is worth our utmost loyalty and devotion. He's worth it. So what does this look like? A brief tangent because I've been thinking about this. Like, How do we give ultimate priority to Jesus while at the same time loving our families? Like, how do we do that? And I think that families have to prioritize Jesus in their family. Like, the number one priority for the family 
is to love and prioritize God. Like he has to come first. Like all other relationships, even the closest family ties become idolatrous when Jesus is not loved first and foremost. And so the family needs to make Jesus central. Like we need to prioritize Jesus. Deuteronomy 11.1 says, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And then it goes on in verses 18 to 22 to say, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children talking of them while you're sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in, in, in all his ways and holding fast to him. And part of loving God first and foremost is a family dynamic. Like when I think about my family, I want my wife to put Jesus first. I want my kids to be raised in a way where they always see Jesus as coming first. That it's not just us as individuals that need to prioritize Jesus, our families need to. We have to prioritize the Lord, but how, how do we do that practically? And I was thinking about this, uh, I was thinking about a few ways that we as families actually can prioritize the Lord in our lives. One is that families have to devote themselves to the word and prayer. Like family devotions of some sort, like parents, you have to model and give instruction to your kids on how to make the Lord first. Like you have to lead by example. And, and we as parents need to try to model that, that Jesus comes first in the family, that ultimately Jesus is our leader, he is our shepherd. And I hesitate to even mention this this morning because I realize that I've not always done a great job of this in my own home. Like, I'm not telling you this this morning because I'm like, I'm killing it. And, you know, we literally have three hours of family devotions a day and my kids pray two hours a day and they, they've memorized the whole New Testament. Like, that's just not the case. But my heart for my family is that they actually would be raised up in the ways of Jesus. My heart for my family is that my kids would actually see Heather and I making decisions based on the Lord's leading in our life and what he desires, not what's best for us. The second thing is this, and this is a little bit pushback against, I think, the American church setup. But families have to prioritize church. And, and the reason I'm getting into this is because it's not just as easy as saying like, Jesus has to come first and that's just the statement that he's making because that's just way too simplistic of a statement. It's like, yes, Jesus has to come first in your life as an individual, but there's actually things that you're a part of that actually put Jesus first in your life as well. And, and we have to prioritize the church gathered because here's the reality for us, is that when a family stops participating in the local church, they're literally taking themselves out of this ecosystem that Jesus has instituted for the betterment of the individual and the family. And so when, it, when a family occasionally attends, and this is not like a shaming session, don't take it as that, but, 
But when a family occasionally attends or they slowly like slip away and they begin to prioritize other things in their life, even if it's their own hobbies, their, their sleep, they're literally depriving themselves from the thing that they need most. And it, it's communicating something to the larger family, our kids. Like it, it's saying something to them like, what is first and foremost to mom and dad? Not Sunday church attendance, but connectedness to the local body of Christ is important to mom and dad, so much so that mom and dad would actually forsake all other things to make that a priority because we believe that it's important. And so many Christians, though, feel no sense of commitment to a local church. Like, they just stop going altogether. And I struggle with even what American Christianity has done in recent years because it's downplayed the importance of meeting together. And if we've ever seen the effects of a lack of gathering together more so than, like we've never seen it more so than we have today. Go to any other metropolitan city in the world and talk to believers, pastors, like people that are highly connected in churches and talk to them about what they're experiencing in this season of isolation. People are going through it. I mean, my wife and I's phones are ringing off the hook Every single day with marriages that are falling apart, people that are struggling, things that are going on as a result of isolation, like we are constantly getting these phone calls and it's what kind of prodded me to talk about this this morning is like we aren't prioritizing Jesus. We have to put him first. Things do not go well from us when we remove ourselves from the ecosystem that he designated for us to be given life to be nourished, to be watered, to be planted, rooted, encouraged, sharpened, convicted, like all of these things happen in the community of faith. And so we have to be connected. And, and the result, when we begin to pull ourselves away from a community of people to live life on our own and do what we want, is we become a spiritually emaciated people. We wither. God did not call you to live life like that. And I think it's important to note that in life, we all prioritize something, don't we? Something's prioritized. The question really is, what do you prioritize and what do you value? What's most important to you? And parents, your kids will pick up on the thing that's most important to you but because it's the thing that you forsake everything else for. And even though like, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty secure in my understanding of what the church is and what it isn't, I'm not trying to make it a Sunday show, I know that there's something valuable in having your family connected to the church. Like This does mean presence on Sundays. It does mean connecting in community and being connected to people. Like There's something significant about the church gathered. Are you mandated to t attend every Sunday scripturally? No, I would never say that. Are you mandated to, attend, to gather with believers for worship, for fellowship, for studying the word and prayer? Yes, it was an integral part of the, or the early church, and we have to lead by example in our homes to show our children what things we prioritize over everything else. Please know this, too, that this isn't because I'm just a pastor. <laughs> like, loyalty to Jesus is expressed in, his loyal, in loyalty to his people. Like, he goes on to say, um, even at the end of this passage, like, 
even those who would give a cold cup of water to one of my disciples. Like, being loyal to his people is loyalty to Jesus himself. Matthew 12, 48 through 50 says, he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And it's almost like Jesus is saying that when you become a disciple, you not only get new priorities, you actually get a new family. And so on one hand, Jesus is saying, He's talking about this hostility and division that might occur in the nuclear family as a result of making Jesus a priority. On the other hand, there's also a new family that he connects you to that you're actually bound together with spiritually, that you might not be family by blood, but you're family by spirit. And that is the actual family that you want to be connected to to actually move your spiritual life further, to advance the kingdom in your own life. And this is certainly true, and it's implied, but it's also stated in this final paragraph of this chapter in chapter 10. Whoever receives you, he says, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And so our priority is to give a cold cup of water to the Lord's disciples. Like, that's our new family. That's our new priority. I don't know if you guys are familiar with a guy named Al Mohler, but Al Mohler, um, years ago, he was asked this question. Al Mohler's like a pastor and a seminary president and like Time Magazine, I think at one point, labeled him one of the most influential Christian thinkers. But he was asked if there was one lesson the Lord had taught him that he would care to share with this group that he was being interviewed by. And this is what he said. He said, I think the one great lesson the Lord has taught me over these years is, that the import, is the importance of the family in the local congregation and that it supersedes every other relationship to which the Christian is called. In other words, like our loyalty to Jesus will actually manifest itself in our loyalty to his people, to the church, to other believers. And so families have to prioritize this in their lives. Verse 38, he says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So we will live for Christ or we will live for ourselves. is what he's saying. The, the statement, take up your cross, is not like a common metaphor that we use today. Most of us, our only understanding when we hear cross is the cross that Jesus bore. We don't think much about crosses. But Jesus' audience did. They would have seen men pick up a wooden cross and carry it to their place of execution. And when that man walked off with the cross on his shoulders, followed by these Roman guards, he was not coming home anytime soon. Like, it was the end for him. When you went to go carry your cross, you were literally going to your place of death. And so this saying, take up your cross, would have implied this sort of complete renunciation of oneself, like walking away from my old self and carrying my cross and going like charging after Jesus, like it was the death to self and the beginning of this completely new life that Jesus has given us. And Jesus demands this of his followers to, to carry their cross. And so when Jesus says, follow me, he meant follow the teacher. Like disciples usually walked behind their teachers. And what did Jesus do? He carried his cross to his place of execution for us. And when he says, pick up your cross and follow me, he's saying like, lay down your life and pick up mine. 
Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I came across an article about an old board game from the mid-50s this week that was kind of interesting. This game made by Parker Brothers, and maybe some of you in this room remember it. It was a game for church families, and the game was called Going to Jerusalem. Has anybody ever heard of this game before? Literally, Parker Brothers made it in the 1950s. The playing pieces for this game were like these little, this little plastic man with a robe and a beard and some sandals and a staff. And in, in order to move across this board, you, you had to look up answers to questions in this little black New Testament book that came with the game. And so you start in Bethlehem, and then you make your way to the Mount of Olives and to Bethsaida and to Capernaum, etc. And, and if you roll the dice well, you actually go, it's sort of like uh, shoots and ladders. <laughs> like you roll the dice well, you go all the way to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the craziest game. I, I really want to find one and buy it. But the interesting part about the game, though, is if you look at the board and you look at all the spots on the board, there's not a crucifixion or a resurrection on the whole board. The, the triumphal entry is the end of it, the end of the game. You've won. There's no demons. There, there's no angry Pharisees. Like, you only make your way through these really nice stories of the Bible, right? Not the crazy ones. It was sort of this safe adventure around this game board. And I think it was perfectly suited for an American audience in the 1950s maybe even for today. There, there weren't any cards or, or stops that said like, take up your cross and follow me. Like what, you know? It's like go to jail card. But it was safe. And I often wonder if, if that's like the peaceful life that, that we're looking to have in Jesus. Like, and it doesn't actually exist because we live in a world of pandemics and conflict and war and disease. And yet part of following Jesus is saying goodbye to your old life. It's saying goodbye to all these things that, that, that impact us daily, daily here on this earth, but do not impact our soul. And if a person is unwilling to lay down their life and their rights and their opinions, if they're unwilling to do that, then they can't follow Jesus. If a person says, for instance, like, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm unwilling to basically stop living my lifestyle, I'm, willing, I'm unwilling to stop sleeping with my girlfriend, I'm willing to give up my immorality, unwilling to give up my immorality, like, that person can't be a disciple. Like, there's something you leave behind in following him. There's things you resist and say no to. You pick up your cross, you follow Jesus, you chase after him by his grace he continues to be the one that lavishes you, that takes care of you, that, 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 that's the one that provides you with like the love and the care in the midst of all of that that you're going through in this life. Like he's the one that brings you through. You're following after him, but you've chosen to leave everything else behind. And here's the good news in this whole message is verses 40 to 42. He says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So whoever receives you, receives Jesus. And whoever receives Jesus, receives the Father. 
And the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's righteous is a righteous person will receive a righteous person reward, righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Like this world may be hard for you as a Christian. Right now may be super difficult. Everything in your life is being strained. But you're gonna be rewarded. (laughs) There's a promise in this. This blessing of the future kingdom will actually offset the sacrifices that you're making here on this earth. The loss of losing parents and children due to the gospel is painful. Like the, the, the idea that families will be pinned against each other as a result of choosing Jesus, it's painful. The, the hostility we will face because we're attached to Jesus is painful. But all of that pain will eventually be offset in the coming kingdom. It's not forever. It's very temporal. It's here on this earth. You will be rewarded as a disciple of Jesus. And this passage ends with, he will by no means lose his reward. And I think this is sort of like a lost doctrine. The vast majority of Christians today think very little about eternal rewards. Like, How you serve him in this life determines how you serve him in eternity. Think about that. Like even the smallest gestures towards the Lord's people, he will take into account the smallest things. Like a cold cup of water was a gift that even the poorest person could have given. Even menial tasks will be taken into account. Like anyone can do this. I'm looking at the season we're in and thinking, there's so many people that don't have so much right now. But who has a cold cup of water? And if you don't, we've got a dozen lakes around here and there's a ton of cold water. It's easy to find. The smallest things that you do. I mean, I'm just not trying to get cheesy going into this next week, but there has to be ways that you can extend a cold cup of, co- cup of coffee. I'll take that. Um, a cold cup of something, not alcohol, to somebody to serve them. Like there has to be some way you can bless somebody in this next week to show them the love of Jesus. Jesus is saying in three fairly equivalent ways that those who receive his followers, because they accept um, what, what those individuals stand for, will in turn receive, be received by God. And I read this crazy story this week, and this might sound totally from left field, but it really impacted me. Um, and I know this could be a touchy subject for some, but when I read this article, I just felt like it illustrates what we're talking about so well. This guy says this, I'm just gonna read this to you. We were having lunch together and I was praying like mad. My friend had been in a committed same-sex relationship for about 15 years. He was interested in Jesus, attracted to his teachings and message, but he wanted to know what implications becoming a Christian might have on his practice and gay lifestyle. I had explained as carefully and graciously as I could that Jesus upheld and expanded this wider biblical stance on sexuality, that the only context for sexual activity was heterosexual marriage, 
Following Jesus would mean seeking to live under his word in this area as in, as in any other. He had been quiet for a moment, and then he looked me in the eye and he asked the billion-dollar question. What could possibly be worth giving up my partner for? I held his gaze for a moment while my brain raced for the answer. There was eternity, of course. There was heaven and hell. But I was conscious that these realities would seem otherworldly and intangible to him. In any case, surely following Jesus is worth it, even for this life. He was asking about life here and now, and so I prayed for a here and now Bible verse to point to. I wanted him to know that following Jesus really is worth it, worth it in the life to come, but also worth it in this life now, no less so for those who have homosexual feelings. Yes, there would be a host of hardships and difficulties, unfulfilled longings, the distress of unwanted temptation, the struggles of long-term singleness, but I wanted him to know that following Jesus is more than worth it, even with all it entails for gay people. And I also wanted to tell him that I had come to know, to know this, not just from studying the Bible and listening to others, but from my own personal experience. Homosexuality was an issue that I'd battled with my entire Christian life. It took a long time to admit to myself, longer to admit to others, and even longer to see something of God's purposes through it all. There have been all sorts of ups and downs, but this battle is not devoid of blessings, as Paul discovered with his own unyielding thorn in his flesh. Struggling with sexuality has been an opportunity to experience more of God's grace rather than less. It is only in recent months that I have felt compelled to be more open on this issue. For many years, I had no intentions of being public about it. It is, of course, very much a personal matter. I'm conscious that raising it here may lead to any number of responses, some welcome, some perhaps less so. But over the last couple of years, I've felt increasingly concerned that when it comes to our gay friends and family members, many of us Bible-believing Christians are losing confidence in the gospel. We're not always convinced it, is, it really is good news for everybody. We're not always sure that we can really expect them to live by what the Bible says. Well, as my mind raced that lunchtime, God gave me a verse to share with my friend. It demonstrates precisely why following Jesus is worth it in this lifetime, and even when we have to give up things we could never imagine living without. And Peter said to Jesus, this is what he shared with him, we've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much as in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. Following Jesus involves leaving things behind and giving things up. And for some, it means leaving behind a lifestyle that all of their identity have been placed in. For some, it means being rejected by family and friends. And for some, it could mean leaving behind drunkenness and consumerism, for some it may mean losing their life. But however much we have to leave behind, we are never left out of pocket. Whatever is given up, Jesus replaces in greater, in greater measure. No one who leaves will fail to receive, and the rewards are extraordinary a hundredfold. What we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. If the costs are great, the rewards are even greater, even in this life. What an amazing story. And there's a bunch to say on this issue, but the main point is this, is that the moment we think following Jesus will be a poor deal for somebody is the moment that we call Jesus a liar. 
Because discipleship is not easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is super hard. But the reminder for you and I today is that Jesus is always worth it. What an amazing statement to end this chapter. Jesus is always worth it, church. He's always worth it. Like if you're here today and you've never bent your knee to Jesus, you've never acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior, you've never decided to turn from something, to turn towards him, to die to yourself and devote your life to Jesus, maybe today's the day. But for many of us in the church, we live with feet in two different worlds, man. We sort of like to have our stuff and add Jesus to it. And I think there's a really strong word as we wrap up this chapter from Jesus that more signifies this idea of like whatever you're holding on to, whatever seems most important to you in life right now that you would never forsake anything else for needs to go if you, need to, if you want to follow Jesus. It has to. We talk about devotion to him. Like this week, we're gonna celebrate by God's grace, what he did by sending his son. And one of the ways we celebrate that is devoting our lives to him in such a way that we would forsake all other things, whatever comes our way, to commit our lives to him. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and close us out. And I wanna pray for you guys. Would you stand with me? couple questions to leave you with. Why don't you bow your heads? One, are you willing to give up your life to follow Jesus? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or look at me or anything. Those of you that are at a place in your life where you're just feeling led by the Spirit to walk away from something to devote your life to Him, you know who you are. Like He's working in your heart. As we talked about last week, he knows every hair on your head. He's literally ordained this day and time since the beginning of time. And his word says if you confess and you believe that you'll be saved. So there's an opportunity for you this morning to confess. Like, what are the things you need to confess to him? What? What does forgiveness need to be had for in your life? And do you believe that Jesus is the one that took care of all of that by dying on the cross for your sins, raising from the dead three days later to grant you eternal life? That's what grounds you in eternity and keeps you disconnected from this earth. And for those of you that don't know Jesus, your life will be devoted to this earth. And for you, you don't even know what awaits the day you die. For us that follow Jesus, there's a certainty that we're anchored somewhere else and that this life is temporal, but we live it in such a way that every single day we're looking for opportunities to give a cold glass of water to those in need to show them the love and the grace of Jesus. The second question is this, is how do we get peace with God? We talk about this idea of peace in the season. 
And there's two things that I'd encourage you to do. One is understand and recognize that there is hostility in the world. That there is hostility in your heart. And turn to God because he's the only issuer of true peace. And the second thing is to believe the gospel, like we just said. That Jesus lived, that he died on your behalf to forgive you of your sins to be raised again so that the power in which you live on this earth in this present time is not on your own but it's in the strength and the power of the most high God moving through you by his spirit would you pray with me Jesus I thank you for this opportunity to discuss your word this morning I thank you for this church and these people I thank you God that there are some here that um, don't even know why they're here this morning they got drugged here they're here because family brought them and yet, Jesus, they're standing there and their heart's racing and um, they just are conflicted inside because everything in them wants to devote everything and follow you. But it seems too painful to do so. And I just pray right now, God, that your love would overcome them, would overwhelm them. Jesus, that right now they'd recognize the fact that your grace is sufficient. And that you would give them the faith right now, Jesus, to believe in you as the one true God. Your word says that nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. And I pray that they would turn their lives to you, Jesus, and believe that you are who you said you are. And for your church, Jesus, I pray that through the, throughout this next week, as we continue to face seasons of uncertainty, things that are just unparalleled, things we've never experienced before, God, I'm just praying that your peace would not be looked for in our surroundings or even in our city, but your peace would be looked for through God himself and that you would grant us that peace that we could stand in the midst of it all, Jesus, and be grateful for the God we serve and the rest that he's given our soul despite all hell breaking loose on this earth. I pray your blessing on each individual here that you'd go with them as they leave that these words would not just be words that we talked about this morning, but they would be words that they carry into their hearts, into their day, into their week, and that they'd ruminate on them and spend time praying with you and reading and rereading and devoting their lives to you, Jesus, asking that your kingdom would come and your will would be accomplished in their life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.